0: And there are 31 chapters in the story. So that means we are one quarter of the way through today. We're 25% of the way through the Bible. And I think it's a very good time to just do a simple review, to go in the timeline of what we've been learning so far. So we started off, of course, with creation. and creation, um, there's studies and there's been a lot of research about when the time of creation was. And the traditional conservative view of creation was around 2500 B.C., And so after creation, God had raised up a people that he wanted to serve him, and yet they continued to sin. And so we know the story of Noah, and we know the story of the great flood, and God's desire to start over. And so around 2100 BC, there came a man named Abraham, who trusted God and who would follow God, and whom God could create a new people, a people of faith, a people who would change the world, a people who would show other people the love of God. And his name was, of course, Abraham and his children, Isaac. And then that would continue on until his children had children. And then there would be a man named Joseph. And Joseph was sowed into slavery into Egypt. But God still had a plan. And while Joseph was in Egypt, he rose to power. And he became the leader, the second in command of Egypt. And there was a great famine. And the people back at home in the Holy Land, where Joseph's family lived, needed food, needed sustenance. And so they traveled down to Egypt, where God brought them back together again. And where they grew into a great and mighty people, but over 400 years, they became slaves. And they cried out to God for deliverance. And then there came Moses, around 1446 B.C., And Moses comes and he delivers the people, chapter 4. And he brings them out of Egypt using all the miracles that God had done for them. And he brings them out into the Sinai Peninsula. And out Mount Sinai, God gives them new commands and new laws, a new covenant, an agreement between God and man that they would walk with him and he would be their God. And they would teach their children And they would go in and possess this wonderful land that God had for them. But while they had been absent for over 400 years, the enemies had taken over the land of Canaan. And they were people who were against God. And there were people who were in idolatry. And God said, you had to go into this land and you had to take it over. But they were unwilling. They were afraid of those people. And through their disobedience, they ended up turning around and going back into the desert for 40 years wandering. And then after those 40 years... Moses died, right on the edge of the promised land. But God still had a plan, and Moses charged his friend Joshua to take the people into the promised land. And so Joshua went in, and he led battle after battle, and he began to take the land for God's people, bringing in the light of God. And the Bible tells us that while Joshua was leading the people into the land of Canaan, that the people followed the Lord for these 40 years while Joshua was taking over the land, the Bible says that these were 40 glorious years where the people obeyed the Lord. Um, where do you think you'll be 40 years from now? I kind of think I know where I'll be, right? And it's not going to be here, right? But you think about it, all right? Where are you going to be 40 years from right now? Some of you are going to be where I am. Yeah, it's not you gotta think about it, right? We don't like it. Four score, you know, we don't always get that 80 years, so well they had 40 years. I want you to think about that, where they obeyed the Lord. Will you? If God will give you 40 years, maybe that's the deal. Okay, God give me 40 years. I will obey you. Would you do that? That's what I want to do. If God gave me 40 more years be a miracle, but I would want to obey God, and that's what they did during the time of Joshua. The Bible says that Joshua died at the age of 110, and after he died, the people continued to follow the Lord, because the elders that had learned from Joshua continued to follow the Lord, but then those elders died, and something terrible happened. And a seed of sin continued to grow in the people. And then the Bible tells us that a whole generation of the people no longer followed the Lord. It only takes one generation to kill off our faith. And that's why it's so important for us to teach our children. So these 40 years that I have left, or whatever part of it I have left, are to teach the next generation so that they don't turn away from the Lord But something happened, and this generation did turn away from the Lord. And so God let them go through what would naturally happen. And we read about this in Judges chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. We read about what happened with this generation. And the Bible says that then the Lord raised up judges. So what had happened was the Lord raised up these judges to help the people because they needed a leader. They were in disarray. They had been disobeying God, and because of their disobedience, God had withdrawn his protection over them, and now the enemy was fighting against them. And they were being captured, they were being defeated, they were being in turmoil, they were in war all the time. And so the Bible says, Then God raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refuse to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so over and over again, six times in the book of Judges, there's this cycle that happens between the generations that come and go. And the cycle is this, they sin. So God withdraws his protection so that they can learn a lesson. And oppression comes upon them. And then when oppression comes upon them, they realize they've done something wrong. And they say, God, we've done something wrong. We repent. We're sorry. Forgive us. And God in his mercy forgives them. And God sends a judge to deliver them. And they become delivered. But then that judge dies and the generation forgets. And it starts all over again. God doesn't want that in our lives. He doesn't want that over the next 40 years of your life. He doesn't want that over the next generation after your life. He doesn't want us going through this cycle of sinning and being punished and crying out for help and getting delivered and then sinning and being punished and crying out for help and getting delivered. He doesn't want it going over and over again. He wants us to make a difference in this world and change it. He wants us to be people who can do something in this world so that we would say at the end of our years, you know what, my life really counted. I may not have a great number of things that people are going to put into history books and say, you did such and such, and you did such and such. But you know what? In the annals of the heart of the generation that I touched, in my circle of influence, I made a difference. My life counted. And God has an amazing purpose for each one of our lives to do something that will touch the lives around us. God has made you with opportunities no one else in all of creation has ever had. Truly, that is true. Because you are the only one that God has ever made just like you. And wherever you work, in the hospital, in the classroom, in the boardroom, in the office, at home with your children, nobody has that unique combination of opportunities As you do, you have talents, you have gifts, and God wants to use them so that you can touch and change the world for good. And so God helps us to learn from these judges how we ought to live. Because when the judges were leading, God did amazing things. And it wasn't because of the judges, as we will see, but God did amazing things because these judges were willing to let God use them. And so we come to one of the judges named Deborah. And Deborah lived around 1200 BC. And Deborah was a woman who was very different than all the other judges just because she was a woman. There were 12 judges, and only one was a woman, and this was Deborah. And Deborah would be very unlikely to be that one who would lead Because of the male dominance of their day. And yet, here she is. Showing us what God thinks of women and of their abilities. That God has made men and women with the ability to lead. God has made men and women with the ability to have true strength. See, true strength isn't in muscles. True strength is in faith. And this is what Deborah had. And even though she was very unlikely, she was available. And so this is the lesson that we learn from Deborah for all of us. That God uses people who may seem unlikely, but they're very available. She was available to God to be used as his spokesperson and as his judge. A judge wasn't somebody who wore a black robe and sat behind a desk and, and had a mallet and, and presided over a court. That's not what a judge did back then. A judge was a military leader. A judge was a spiritual leader. And a judge was a political leader. And so God was using these 12 judges to bring leadership over the people so that they could change their world. And Deborah was not only a judge, the Bible says she was a prophet. And again, you go through the Bible, and most of the prophets usually are men. But then there comes this unlikely source, someone you wouldn't expect, a woman named Deborah, who became not only a great leader, but a great teacher of God's law. As a prophet, she would tell people, this is what God has done for you. Follow him. Obey him. Don't Go into the places of idolatry. Don't do what the other people are doing. Be different. Be God's person. Be faithful to him. So we read about Deborah in Judges chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And there it says, Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lepidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah. So they even named this place, this meeting for her, the Palm of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. And so she was a leader that the people would go to, yes, at times to share their disputes, to act like a judge, as we might expect. But she also was that military leader. And so the Bible goes on to say that because they were under attack from a, a land called Hazor, they were under attack, and so she was rounding up the troops, and she called her military leaders together. And in verse 7, she speaks to her military leader, Barak, and she says to him, I will lead Sisera. Now Sisera okay, is the leader of the enemy troops. Sisera is, let's say, the general over the enemy troops. And what she's saying is, I'm going to go into battle, and I'm going to lead Sisera away from where he's supposed to be so that you can then surprise and attack him. And so she says, I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. We're going to set a trap. And I, Jebra, am going to lead the charge. And I'm going to fix it up so that Sisera so that would move away from his home into a place where he'd be vulnerable. And then you will be able to attack him, Barak, and you'll be able to overcome him. And so it happens. And so they go into war, and they go into battle, and she's very successful. And Sisera follows, and Barak attacks, and the troops become in chaos, and they begin to lose and give up their ranks, and they begin to disperse. Even so, Sisera, the leader, he leaves, and he runs away from his troops, and he begins to run into the high country to find a place of refuge. He kind of knows where to go because there's certain treaties in that land. And so he goes into a place where he would have an opportunity to hide in a little tent city. And he comes up to a woman named Jael. And Jael's family was part of the other families that had truces with Sisera. And so he went up to Jael and he said, will you let me go into your tent? And she said, certainly, go into my tent, all right? And I'll hide you and you can be there. And she said, you know, go on in, don't be afraid. And he goes, okay, I'm exhausted. I've been fighting all the time. And she goes, take a nap. And so she gives him a blanket and he lies down. Just as he lies down, he goes, oh, I'm like a kid. He goes, I'm, I'm thirsty, right? So he goes, oh, you're thirsty, okay. She goes, bring me some water. And he says, I'll do better than that. So she goes and gets some milk for him. Brings him some milk, some nice warm milk. It's for a nap and he drinks the milk. And then he says, you know, I'm going to go to sleep now. But what I want you to do is I want you to guard the tent, right? And if anybody comes by and says, hey, do you know where sister is? Have you seen anybody? She's like, no. right? She goes, sure, I'll do that. And so she goes to the tent and she stands by the door and he, she looks and he looks and she goes, oh, I'm good now, man. Take my nap. So he goes to sleep and he just goes into a deep sound sleep. And so this beautiful little lady, JL, you know, she picks up a tent peg. And she picks up a hammer. And this is what we read in Judges chapter 4, verse 21. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him. That's Sisera, while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Alright. Let's hear it for Jael. This little woman. An unlikely source of victory for the people of Israel, but God was using Deborah and God was using Jael. And just think of your Hebert, Jael's wife, right? You know, you see this. Like, yes, dear. You know, the next time she says, "Hey, will you go to the market?" And picks up. Yes, dear. You know, this is a strong woman, right? You're not gonna fight with her. You're not gonna mess with her. You're gonna mess with Deborah, right? These are women that are strong and mighty. Why? Because they're available to God. And if a woman can be available to God, a child can be available to God. A man can be available to God. And God can use us to change this world and break the cycles of sin in our families, in our community, and in our culture. Of course, Deborah dies. And years later, God has to raise up another leader And his name is Gideon. And you've probably heard of Gideon before, and you've heard about Gideon and the fleece, where he put the fleece out, just to be sure that God really wanted him to be the soldier that God was calling him to be. And so we read the story of Gideon. And we find out in the story of Gideon that God likes to use weak people. So, you know, if you feel like you're sort of an unlikely source of changing the world, like, who here wants to sign up and change the world? Well, think of Deborah. Very unlikely. But maybe you say, Well, I'm too weak to change the world. I mean, I'm just one person. You know, I'm just hiding out here in the bubble of Irvine. I don't want to, you know, get in trouble. But can you imagine that God wants to use you to change your world? God wants to use you to change those people, the circle of influence you have. You go, why well, I feel weak? Well, look at Gideon. He was weak. But he also understood what strength In Judges chapter 6, verse 11 through 16, this is what we read. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. All right, now, let's take a picture here and see what's going on. Okay, so the years had gone by, all right, and now the people were being punished again because they had turned away from the Lord. So God was allowing the country of Midian to come in and afflict the Israelites so they would turn back to the Lord. And it was time now because the people had been crying out for help. And so God says, okay, I hear your pleas. I'm going to raise up a new judge. And so God sends an angel into this place where there is a man named Gideon. And Gideon is inside of a wine press and he's threshing wheat. Now, why is he doing that? Is that where, you know, do you thresh wheat in a wine press? You know, do you get wine out of wheat? Not there. Okay, you're supposed to get grain. And so normally what would happen is you would take your wheat up onto the hills where it would be windy, and you would thresh your wheat so that then the chaff would be blown away and you would have the seeds that you need to make your breads. But because the Midianites were a strong army, And because the Midianites were mean and evil and they would take over anybody that they could and they would take the things that they had, then the people of Israel had to hide. And so Gideon is hiding in a wine press right now so that he can thresh the wheat so his family can have something to eat. And he's afraid, as all the people are. That's why he's in the wine press. You would expect that. But an angel comes to him and says, Hey, Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And so Gideon replies how I might reply in verse 13. um, Pardon me? He says, pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where did all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And so he's looking around and he says, you know, things aren't very good. Why would all of this happen? Why are we in such trouble? And it's interesting because the angel doesn't answer his question. The angel doesn't want to get into a debate with him. Right? The angel doesn't want to tell him all the things they had been done wrong and, and why they needed to be punished and why it was time for them to stand up and why he was going to be raising up a new leader. But the angel just simply says to him in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Gideon knows he's weak. He's hiding in a wine press. He's all by himself. An angel comes and tells him he's a mighty warrior. He's not a warrior. He's a farmer. He doesn't know how to fight. He's supposed to be threshing wheat. And he's scared. He's ill-prepared. He's inadequate. And he says, you know what? We are from the weakest of all the tribes. We're from Manasseh. Don't you understand this, Lord? Lord. Pardon me, but, you know, I am even the least within this least of all the families. Like, I'm the runt of the litter, right? But the angel won't abandon him. And the angel tells him, no, no excuses. This is what I want for you. Yes, you are weak, but go in the strength you have. You are here today because you came with the strength you have. You didn't have to come here with great, great faith. You came, even as Jack said, with a mustard seed of faith. You have strength to be here. You have strength to get out of bed. You have strength to go to work. You have strength to drive and see your relatives. You have strength to go and visit somebody in need. You have the strength already to do what God wants you to do. So a lot of times I think we think, well, I'll do something for God if God gives me the strength. God has already given us the strength. He just wants us to have the faith to go and walk out in that strength and do what he calls us to do. Now, it's very important that we know we're doing what he calls us to do. Right? We can't just say, you know what, I know what God wants me to do and go out and do it on our own. We have to hear from God. We have to spend time and listen for what God is teaching us. But when there is an enemy to overcome, when there is a trial that we must endure, when there is a person that we want to win over, when there is a challenge that we must accept, a wall that we must climb, a race that we must run, God says, turn to me and go in the strength I've already given to you. And so Gideon goes, and he faces the Midianite army. And you read chapter 8 this week? And if you read it carefully, you notice the way they described the Midian troops. They don't really number them, but they described them this way. They said the troops were so great in number, they were like locusts. Right? They were like the plague of locusts, flying like a dark cloud over the land of Canaan. And then it says... And their camels were more numerous than the sand on the seashore. Now, we've read in the past where the people were more numerous than the sand on the seashore. But these were camels. So if the camels are more numerous than the sand on the seashore, imagine how many more troops there are. And so archaeologists and those who have studied and tried to figure out how many there might have been in media, the estimates are somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000. 100,000 to 200,000, let's say 150,000 troops are going to fight against Gideon. So Gideon calls the army, and he says, all right, let's count up the men, and how many are there? And they find out there's 32,000 men who are going to go out into battle. 32,000 against 150,000. And God says to Gideon, you know what? Your army's just too big. It's just too big. You know, I know you've got to go fight the Midianites, but, you know, I want it to be fair, so, so I want you to tell your soldiers, those of you who are afraid, raise your hand. All right? And so 22,000 raised their hand, all right? And, and Gideon says, thanks for being honest, get out of here, all right? You're off the army, you're out, all right? So he's down to 10,000. He says, okay, God, got my 10,000. There's 150,000 Midianites out there, but all right, God. And God says, good, Gideon. Great job. You know what? Your army's still too big. So what I want you to do is go down to the river. and, And your guys are thirsty, and they're tired, and they're scared. But I want you to go down to the river and get a drink and refresh yourself. So they go down the river, get a drink, and then God says to Gideon, okay, Gideon. So now what I want you to do is I want you to look at all the men who drink like a dog. All right? Who put their hand in the river and use their hand like a dog bowl, and then they 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 up, they lap up the water. All right. And the other guys probably just, you know, put their head in the water and drink. But these guys who do this, who make their hand into a dish, lick up the water, those are the ones who are going to fight against Midian. And so three hundred guys do this. And the other almost 10,000 say, Bye bye. And God says, Good. Now it's fair. Now we got the troops that we need. And so, with these 300 men, Gideon, I am going to lead you into battle over the Midianites. And so, what I want you to do, we find out in Judges chapter 7, verse 16, this is what Gideon does after God tells him. He says, To his troops, he says, I'm going to divide up the 300 men into three companies. He plays trumpets and empty jars into the hand of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow your trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So they're going into battle with what? With trumpets and a torch inside of a lamp bow. Alright? Trumpets and a torch inside of a lamp bow. And then Gideon says, follow me. What we're going to do is we're going to break the lamp bow and we're going to hold the torch and then we're going to blow the trumpet and we're going to win the war. The odds are now 500 to 1. Maybe you feel like there's something in your life where the odds are like 500 to 1. You're facing something that's really, really insurmountable. You don't have a clue as to how anybody could help you. But God says, I am here. And though you may feel weak as one against 500, just go in the strength I give you. And so Gideon does and they rout the Midianite army. God has the Midianite army actually fight against themselves and start killing themselves. And so Gideon had yelled, and make a notice of this again, Gideon said, watch me, follow my lead. Gideon had become a leader. Gideon had become a soldier. And then Gideon said, as we go into battle, this is what I want you to shout, for the Lord And for Gideon, I'd like to think that I, as your pastor and servant, but as your leader, could also challenge you to go out into Irvine, go out in Orange County, go out into L.A., and take the land for the Lord. And so when you go out there, and you go and do your thing for the Lord, I want you to yell, for the Lord! And for Curtis! (laughs) Right? I mean, you know, that's what Gideon did. So it'd be biblical? but let's make it practical. You know your name. So I want you to think about what are you facing in life? What's going on in your life that's hard? Where are there odds against you? And I want you to go up to what you're facing and say, for the Lord and for Solomon. For the Lord and for Christy, For the Lord and for Ron. For the Lord and for Jack. For the Lord is first. And Gideon had it right. But God will bring his forces with you to help you to win what you're facing if you will endure. So if you are weak, just go with the strength you already have. And then there is a famous judge, maybe the most famous of all, Gideon dies. People sin. God has to raise up a new leader. So God chooses a family to have a child named Samson. And this is the guy maybe who you would make the movie about. Right? This is the guy who's really, really strong. He can tear apart a lion with his bare hands. Right? He can destroy thousands of men with his bare hands. Killing them with a the jawbone of a donkey. This man is amazing. This man would beat Thor. Alright? This man would be able to do anything he wants just with his very strength because God had given him this amazing power and he was a hunk as well. He never had to cut his hair. Alright? You know, he put Fabio to shame. He was just a beautiful man. Alright? And God blessed him. But he himself was weak and a sinner. And he had a particular weakness for women. Maybe you heard of Delilah. His beautiful wife Delilah. And he allowed her to nag him and just give up everything he had. He was a weakness for women. He also had a terrible temper. And and he would get into all kinds of trouble because he couldn't control his anger. But if you look at the whole story of Samson, it seems that his real weakness was pride. He had all this strength, and he thought it was because of himself. Yet God still used him. He was still a judge over all of Israel. But he messed up so bad when he gave up all the secrets of his life to his wife Delilah that he was taken by the enemy, and his eyes were gouged out, And his hair was shaved, so his strength, which came from his hair, which God had decided that he would have strength because his hair would never be cut. But when it was cut, he lost his strength. His eyes were gouged, and he was sent into the prison of the Philistines because of his sin. He was a broken man. Maybe you feel like you are broken, too. Samson could have looked back on his life and realized all the opportunities missed He looked back on his life and he probably felt like he would have been disqualified. So much sin. Maybe you feel that way too. Maybe you feel like I've sinned too much. I've messed up too often. I'm just not able to do this anymore. Here's a broken man. But he shows us that even a broken man can be used by God if we will humbly plead for help. So the end of our 40 days, maybe it's the last 40 years, maybe it's the end, the last day. This was the last day of Samson's life. And he realized he had made so many mistakes. And he had been arrested and he'd been put in prison, and they were making fun of him. They had this huge party in the Philistines, and they were making fun of Samson. They brought him out and they had him perform. Doesn't say what he did, but they used him to mock him. And the people were laughing, the people were having a great time. But Samson knew God was still available to him. And so the Bible says in Judges chapter 16, verse 28 Then Samson prayed to the Lord. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. On the last day of his life, he still believed enough. He had been humbled. And he pleaded with God that though I am broken and though I have sinned, God, please, this one last time, Return your strength to me. And he put his hands on the pillars of this huge building. And he pushed the pillars so that they collapsed on the building and on the people. And everyone died. And the Israelites had their victory over the Philistines. But it took to the very end of his life a broken man. God can use you, even if you're broken. If you'll just cry out to him and ask him to restore you, ask him to forgive you, ask him to love you and show you his strength and to strengthen you, Lord, just once more. This is why Jesus came. He came to show us that his forgiveness is always available, no matter how much we sin, no matter how broken we are. And we can always plead on the life and on the death of Jesus. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 6-9, through 9, the Bible says, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Are you broken? Do you feel a place in your life where you need forgiveness? The Bible promises he will purify us from these. If we will confess, which just means to agree with God that, yes, Lord, I have sinned and I need your forgiveness. And then you plead the blood of Jesus. And you say, Lord, would you forgive me based not upon what I can do, but based upon what you did on the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is God's invitation to us. To come to him in our weakness. To come to him in our brokenness. To get from him his strength through Jesus. And to receive from him the forgiveness that gives grace and strength. So that we will be able to go out into the world and say to the people of the world, The Lord is the strength of life. You can be one of the few good men and women that make this world safe for those who believe. That you can be those people who change the world person by person, day by day. Opportunity that only you have. God wants to use you and to use us to change this world for him. And so we take of communion as a reminder of what God does for us. When we look at the Bible and we look at the Old Testament, especially as we've been looking at Joshua and then as we look at the book of Judges, we see that there's a lot of violence. We see that there are times that things happen where we wonder why would this happen, like the death of the firstborn children. Why would all this happen? But they were precursors to help us to see the love of God. Because his only son would go through that kind of violence. And not only the kind of violence that would bring death to thousands of soldiers, but the kind of violence that was due to millions, billions of people because of their sin. And Jesus, in his body, took all of that violence on himself and he died unfairly for our sins. He died and paid the price so that you and I could be with him and forgiven.